welcome everyone. Thank you for coming out today. Um, I just wanted to say welcome to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar um, uh, course. It's called the Colloquium and we are in our 12th year. Is that right, Fred? 12th year? So here's to 12, year, 12 more years. Uh, my name is Dawn Rodriguez Ward. I'm the Ag Biofuse Program Coordinator at the GES Center, and I will be co-facilitating this course this semester with Jen Baltzigar, who is a postdoc at the Gould Lab at the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology. Um, and let's see, before we begin, I wanted to leave some space for updates and announcements, um, as we've done in the past. And if anyone has any announcements or updates they'd like to talk about, whoever is online or in the room, and while you think about those announcements and updates, I will give a few as well. So um, I want to remind students that we have our GES write-in on Tuesdays, and that's gonna be from 10 to 11.30. So it's kind of like a writing accountability uh, where we meet for an hour and a half. It's, it's via Zoom. Uh, they used to be in person, but we can discuss it in the coming months. We wanna go back to being in person. And so if you're interested, please let uh, Jen and I know about that. It's it was, it happened in the past with Jen and Nora and, um, and we will be continuing that. So it's really great if you're trying to write an article, a grant proposal, you just need some quiet writing time and someone to hold you accountable. We talk for a few minutes in the beginning, uh, turn our videos off, we write, and then we uh, meet up for the last few minutes. So uh, please let us know if you're interested. And also next week, we're gonna have Stephen Prager, the Senior Program Officer for Agricultural Transformation Strategy at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And he'll be talking about innovation for inclusive agricultural transformation. So we invite all of you to uh, attend, whether it's online or in person and tune, tune in for next week. Um, Let's see. Also, we're going to have a lunch with Dr. Prager afterwards. So all Ag Biofuse affiliated faculty and students who are interested in meeting with him informally and continuing the conversation are invited from one to two o'clock afterwards. So just putting that out there. Does anyone have any announcements or updates? Okay. Anyone online? Okay. All right. Well, feel free to put it on the chat if you'd like, and we can also read it out loud. All right, so without further ado, I'm going to call up the Ag Biofuse uh, cohort. And I wanna let everybody know that this year, our Ag Biofuse fellows, uh, we have 13 students that represent 11 different programs here. And this is the last year of, uh, well, we have two more years with them, but this is our last cohort. And they will be talking to us today about their experience in their immersive summer field uh, course this summer in Eastern North Carolina. So we spent two weeks in Eastern North Carolina together and I will let them continue the conversation about lessons learned and experience and, and all. So I welcome you all and I thank you guys for joining us today.
Hello, thank you all for joining us today. We are so glad to have you here. Today we're going to talk about loss of resiliency, exploring agricultural complexity in East North Carolina. And no farmer exactly mentioned loss, but through our discourse with each other, we were able to create themes. We'll talk about more of that later, but thank you for listening. So also, speaking of our themes, we also had to figure out who we were before we had themes. And this is our wonderful cohort. Unfortunately, Adeline, Asa, and Greg aren't here, but we are a cadre of interdisciplinary scientists working together on issues that range from communications, risk management, all the way to climate change and anthropology. And we're so glad to be here in front of you today. All right, I'm going to provide a little bit of context for our discussion today. Uh, first of all, you'll notice that we are 13, not one, and we interviewed over 25 different people in the farming community. There was not one typical farmer. And so this 30 minute discussion, maybe 45, uh, is our distillation and it's just one framing uh, of our two week experience. We think that uh, this presentation is more robust because we are interdisciplinary representing 11 different departments. Um, it's a case study. So in that it was uh, a experience in a particular space in a particular time, we used informal semi-structured interviews and while we had a collection of questions, uh, we did not set our questions ahead of time. We followed the threads of conversation to see where they would lead. Um, and as Chris mentioned, our title is Loss and Resilience, um, but that reflects our impressions and our informal analysis more than it does the viewpoints or the words of the farmers themselves. A little bit of geographical context, our fieldwork took place in 11 counties in North Carolina primarily in the northeastern part of the state. Um, these are areas that are primarily coastal plains and located at an elevation of zero to 200 feet. You'll see why that matters in a little bit. Um, and this is the ag heart of the state. All right, a very brief historical context. Uh, these were indigenous lands before uh, they were farmlands. Uh, including the people of the Tuscarora. Uh, repeated incursions in, into these lands would have led to disruptions that make identity and record hard to place. Um, but we know that an area that was primarily once riverine swamp is has been over time converted to farmland. Some of that initial drainage and conversion work was conducted or completed by people who were enslaved. Uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, large tracts of land were converted to farmland, often by the farmers themselves. And now we go back to those themes I was talking about. As I mentioned, we have a big array of scientists, a huge cadre of scientists. And to be, in order to actually get our ideas across and create themes, we did something called a word cloud. You know what word cloud is out there? Raise your hand. Word cloud, word cloud. Yeah, look at my word cloud, people. Right, so we did a word cloud to get our thoughts together. And from this, we constructed a presentation. We can't wait to show it to you. So one of the major themes that stood out for us was the issue of a changing environment. And as you all have already probably heard, uh, climate change is real. But it was during this trip that I got to see how close the impact of a changing climate is to home. Um, during this trip, we got to see incidences of flooding, overflowing drainages, erosion, salt water intrusion in some, in some farms. 
And this is even worsened by low elevation in the region and the coastal storms that bring additional salt inland in most of their farm. So one land that stood out for me was this cotton and soybean farm, um, farm in Hyde County. The farmer took us around his field to show us how much salt has intruded in his farmland. And as you can see in this picture, it's, it used to be an arable uh, piece of land with cotton in the other side. So this, uh, due to the salt intrusion, they have lost that significant uh, portion of an arable land. And this is the reality of so many farmers in that region. Interestingly, during our interview with the farmer in this county, with this particular farmer, someone asked him, what do you think about the prediction that most of these areas will be underwater in the next couple of decades? He responded that he didn't believe it. He, he didn't think, he didn't deny that this would happen, but he believes that technologies that can help to solve this problem will soon be developed. While we share their optimism that um, a solution will soon come for some of these problems to be uh, solved, we'd love to talk briefly about some of the management practices that these farmers are using to solve their um, climate change related issues. So farmers embrace a lot of different management methods to combat these climate change challenges. Water management is absolutely key for preventing oversaturated soils and from salt water leaching back into the seeping into fields. Farmers will often invest in particular drainage situations and systems to regulate the water in their fields to the best of their ability, but this only goes so far. Farmers are also looking to different crops such as cotton or asparagus or incorporating genetically engineered varieties that can tolerate higher salinity and more waterlogged soil. Lastly, farmers may modify their tillage methods to adapt to these water level challenges. Some farmers embrace no-till as a way to reduce erosion, but other farmers told us that tillage was a helpful way for them to re-level out the land and create mounds, which can provide a more consistent and drier environment for plants to grow in. So here we have a little picture of two different drainage situations in the farm. This is a drainage flap actually that prevents salt water from coming back up into the fields further up. And then we have other drainage ditches that are just really big, really big ditches that will hold the water and the farmland will be kind of sloped down so it drains into these ditches. Another uh, environmental uh, pressures that we saw was uh, uh, re resistance in the communities. Uh, that was mainly resistance of uh, weeds and also resistance of pests. Um, I'm only gonna focus on resistance of uh, uh, pests, uh, but Dr. Uh, Leon Ramon gave us a wonderful talk about resistance of uh, uh, weeds uh, in the area. But a lot of farmers uh, that we talked to, um, you know, we kept talking about BT, uh, as many of you know, BT crops are engineered to have uh, uh, toxins that kill insects when they ingest it. And many farmers that we talked to, we asked them, you know, what does BT mean to you? And many of them uh, were talking about how BT means more yield and less spraying. And this, this was very important to them because, you know, one of the issues that they're facing over time is going to be the loss of uh, 
of uh, the, uh, the effectiveness of these Bt uh, toxins. And this is, uh, this is uh, happening over, uh, you know, in this region as well. And so, and so uh, we, we talked a lot about refuge, which is uh, one of the management practice to uh, uh, reduce resistance. And what refuge is, is essentially you uh, plant uh, your regular Bt corn and then you also plant uh, non-Bt corn. And then the idea there is that if you have uh, susceptible pests that will feed on non-Bt corn and they can intermate with uh, partially resistant or, uh, or resistant pests and that can slow down resistance. And so, one of the, uh, you know, this is just a little graphic here that shows uh, what can happen. And so one of the issues that we kept talking about is how farmers are not, um, uh, th there's low, there's not that many farmers that are doing uh, refuge. And so this is a big problem because, you know, this, this is a technology that's very important to them. So they should, you know, the, this is, you know, it's important that they keep doing this so we can have uh, uh, resistance, uh, we can reduce resistance uh, pests. And so one of the issues that, there's, they, that we saw was that they, they, um, they, re, they, they receive the non-BT as, uh, you know, they have to switch out equipment. There's not that many, uh, there's not that many good hybrids, so they're perceived as a loss. So to them, it's not, it's not, uh, as, it's not as important right now as it should be. But again, but this is something that's going to be very important in the future. So researchers, uh, especially uh, extension agents like Dominique, are working with the communities to try to bring that, uh, those numbers up so more farmers can plant uh, non-refuge. And uh, so that's, that's been a big theme that we saw in the, in the farming community and also uh, just the changing of uh, resistance in, in both weed management and also uh, 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 pest management. Thank you so much. So we talked about a changing environment and now we're talking about a changing community and using that beautiful word cloud I showed you earlier, the beautiful blues, we were able to find some themes within this ideal as well. We have land acquisition, we have labor, we have farm to farm relationship and we have trust. One of the places we stopped was the Tillery Resettlement. And this was launched in 1935 as part of the new land deal under President Roosevelt. And it established homesteads throughout the South. Out of those 113 awarded total, there was 13 awarded to black communities. What made this story even more beautiful and impressive was Gary Grant, this gentleman right here. He spoke of his family land history and how important it was to tell his story. He's part of a group called the Concerned Citizens of Tillery. Um, his father was president. They said they knew better than to make him president. <laughs> but he spoke of how his family borrowed money from the USDA way back in the early 1900s. And they weren't able to, the money arrived late, which was typical for other black farmers in the South. And they weren't able to produce a successful crop since they planted their crops so late. And then they didn't make a profit that year and the government recalled their loans and they weren't able to pay it successfully back. And they said they were in court for years up until the early 2000s trying to reach an agreement for the loan. 
He also spoke of his involvement in the Black Farmers lawsuit, Pickford versus Glickman, and how he was able to help really launch that. Pickford versus Glickman was a lawsuit founded by the Black farmers against the Secretary of the USDA for farmers who were wrongfully discriminated against in 1981 to 1996. And he also talked about the importance of keeping land in the family. One of the ladies at the Tillery settlement said, land is power, land is money. I might not have $5 in my pocket, but I have land to bargain with. And so that was a beautiful story of their history with farmland. Okay. Um, some of the social issues that people talk to us about uh, land were involving owning and renting land, stewardship and inheritance with heirs property issues. Um, so owning and renting land, uh, the majority of the farmers we spoke to owned like a small percentage of the land they were farming, but the majority of the land that they were farming on was actually rented. Um, and then the rental agreements ranged quite wildly also. Some people spoke of just handshake agreements they had with their landlords versus more formal leases. Um, one farmer said that he had 65 different contracts for renting the land that he was farming on. Uh, one said that his landlords were as numerous as corn stalks in the cornfield. So um, it's like a lot of pieced together land that farmers are farming on. But several farmers owned like the entire tract of their land also. So it was a wide range of different experiences there. Um, so also uh, with stewardship, a lot of the leases they have are long-term. So between like one year, three years, five years, but some were extended up to like 30 years. Um, and so a lot of farmers spoke about how they wanted to treat the land well because well-treated land is productive land. We came in with like some presuppositions that maybe that land that you're renting isn't treated as well as land that you own. And we were very curious about that. And a lot of people had a lot of things to say about how actually that's not the case. You actually really want to value all of the land equally, even if you don't own it, because you're, you're extracting that as a resource and it's a resource and you want to maintain that. Um, However, a lot of people also said that you don't want your land to look too good. Otherwise, your neighbors might start coming in and offering your landlord a higher price to rent it from them so that they price you out of the land. So you don't want it to look too good either. So there was this interesting friction with wanting the land to be a valued resource and not wanting you know, your neighbors to come in and outbid you. So there was some interesting dynamic there. Um, and then there's an heir's property issue in North Carolina. So um, heir's property is an interesting inheritance thing where uh, effectively, if someone who is a landowner passes without a will, um, all of their descendants inherit all of the land. And this is an issue because you have a lot of like cooks in the kitchen then and a lot of ideas of what to do with land and a lot of division of agency and a lot of... Uh, it's, it's just, it's much more difficult to do anything with. Um, and then this is an intersectional issue. It uh, disproportionately affects African-American communities and Latinx communities. Um, it's not so much of an issue uh, in white communities as much. And so it's like an intersectional issue as well, where there's some uh, historic precedent as well that pulls it in and makes land ownership more exclusive. Um, and so, so 
the economists in our group who aren't here today also like made these graphics for us to kind of examine some of the demographic data of who where land is owned and who the who the farmers are. So my topic is labor. Um, one of the questions I like to ask um, people when I went to their farms was, what's the main challenge that you face farming in this region? And nine times out of 10, they said labor. I think there were two incidents that they didn't have issues with labor in particular. And I, it was odd. It was very odd that they didn't have issues with labor. So um, again, finding labor is a problem. Nobody wants to work. Uh, one of um, and this is very uh, typical of, uh, excuse me, let me start uh, Many of the farms in North Carolina are multi-generational farms. Um, this is very typical of uh, the average for the United States as well, which is 96% of U.S. farms are family owned and operated. But sometimes, you know, your family doesn't continue that legacy. Uh, or, you know, you have children who, wants to, who want to go to college and you, don't, you have those gap years where you need some extra help. Um, mechanization has decreased the amount of people that really need to work on a farm, but has also increased the skills you need to operate those uh, machines. Um, so the number of workers needed to operate a large farm has decreased, but the skills has increased. Many of the farmers that we were able to chat with discussed noticeable lack of motivation from locals to want to actually fulfill those positions that they need help with. Um, urbanization probably is a contributing factor, factor to that. Less people are moving to rural, rural areas. Um, and then, so obviously we gotta get the work from somewhere. Um, so we, most of the farmers are now hiring seasonal workers, usually under the H2A temporary agricultural worker visa. And North Carolina is the top five, I believe it's fifth in number of hires from um, this H2A visas. And um, I put up a demographic here of where 99% of the H2A visas are issued, what country they're issued from. Um, different relationships obviously are between different workers and their, uh, their farm farmers that they work for. But many of the relationships were positive. One particular farmer said that he had Someone, work, um, someone working there for over 10 years and it was basically family to him. Um, all right, so to this point, we've heard about um, environmental, biological challenges, sociopolitical challenges. Um, so before we kind of close out and get back to our theme on resiliency, um, we wanted to say a couple of things about farmer to farmer relationships um, or another way to think about this is, you know, where and how does the idea of like community happen? Um, so just real quickly, um, this can kind of be broken down um, in, in two ways, formal spaces and informal spaces. So we were inundated with um, collectives and associations that farmers said they had, you know, either heard about or gone to an event at or maybe even served on a board, either formally or, or presently, um, right? So these are organizations with sponsorships, funding boards, public events, and, and we actually had the chance to attend one. It's this Chrome Regional Ag Expo. Um, it was a site of continuing education for farmers, 
Um, and there was a meal at the end, and it was also a chance for farmers to, to connect with each other and, and, um, and be social with one another. Um, outside of that, we also heard a lot about informal spaces, right? Like mundane, everyday conversations. Um, you know, yeah, we talk to each other. It might be just bumping into each other, you know, at the store or talking on the phone or email or text or whatever. Um, we heard about um, one farmer who said on a recent hunting trip, the guy he went with was talking his ear off about trying new varieties. Um, we heard about small sort of private meetings in shops, houses, um, and, and a couple of the restaurants that we, we actually attended. Um, so fun story. Yeah. We, we attended one restaurant and like saw a farmer there who we had recently interviewed and it was kind of fun. It goes to show sort of a, a small world out there. Um, that said, there were contrasting accounts of communities amongst growers. So on one hand, we heard a lot of, um, we talk to each other every day. We help each other out. We're tight knit. I don't see a stranger. Um, I stay for the people. We lean each on each other. So we heard a lot of that. Um, on the other hand, we heard different accounts. We heard um, some farmers saying, I don't you know, talk much to others. I, I mostly engage with chemical and seed companies because they help me out the most. Um, we heard about various counties, you know, sort of saying, like, we don't rent each other out in this county the way that they do in that county. Um, a couple of the more notable things just at the bottom here, uh, one, one grower said if he went into the, the John Deere equipment facility that like no one would recognize him. Um, and one of the more unique experiences we had was um, sitting down with a multi-generational generation farm. We got to talk to grandfather, father and son kind of all at the same time. Um, and they expressed that the sense of community and neighborly camaraderie was, was really a pretty big change in terms of so not what it used to be in reference to what it was like when the, when the grandfather was, was up and coming. Um, so that has different implications for, for who, who farmers trust. Uh, I'm painting some pretty broad strokes here, but um, in general, it was pretty routine that NC State Extension and largely the, the university as a whole was in pretty good graces with farmers in terms of being a trustworthy um, uh, resource. Independent crop consultants were, were a big one. We routinely heard that like to the, to answer the question of how do you make a decision and who do you trust? It was, they would pivot to their, we know a guy, uh, we know this independent crop consultant. Um, and also these continuing education events from, from the farming collectives I mentioned earlier, um, all, all pretty good. Just a little more skepticism. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like total distrust and you know, this binary black and white thing, but, um, a little more skepticism was expressed around industry representatives. Farmers seemed to know that these people were out there to sell them something. Um, and so they, they said often, we, we take it with a grain of salt. Governmental agencies are on here, not really because of you know, quality of information, but there was some expressed skepticism around whether or not these agencies, uh, regulatory agencies, implement policies that are beneficial and, and efficient uh, for the farmers. Um, lastly, I'll just mention before I hand it off to Nick, um, that farmers trust themselves. Uh, I think they are presented with sort of a range of options and routes to go. And there's, there can be sort of a lot of noise when you, when you go out, um, but ultimately they have to make a decision that's best for them um, and their, you know, their field on their farm in a very hyper-local way. So um, I think they have to trust themselves and generally speaking, they, they do trust themselves, so. <laughs> And so you've heard basically from all of my colleagues, like the complexity of all these issues. I mean, we're looking at things that are like environmental, social, political, 
all of these things are, are leading to like adaption and resilience. So I was like, not only are farmers already like implementing like their own like plans when it comes to adaption and resilience, I was like, they're also leaning on uh, other groups and other people uh, to, I guess, adapt to these problems. And that's kind of where we come into this space. And also where just all other different factors come into the space. So we have things such as like changing production decisions where there's environmental factors and conditions uh, such as saltwater intrusion and climate change in general, where it's like, we have to adapt or they have to adapt and be more resilient as things are changing to this very unpredictable nature. Uh, I mean, we even talked to farmers, I think that had like thousands of acres of land and it's like, they had to be very specific just on like different plots of like, over here, we need like localized technology. We need this type of stuff and this, these type of hybrids like on this land. And then over here, we need other types of like research. So I was like, even with like NC state, NC state extension, I was like, it takes a village to go out there and be like, all right, we have to fix like this part of the land and then also understand this part of the land. Um, I also had community asset management where basically we were looking at a common pool of resources uh, whether that be a positive or a negative. I mean, we talked about that BT refuge and hoping to not uh, build pest resistance. I was like, that's something that takes a group effort of working together. Um, it also talks about, I mean, when we're looking at like digging drainage ditches, I was like, you have to be adaptive together as a group, um, which is also where civic participation comes together. And as Nolan was talking about, like that happens at all different levels. I was like, you have farmers that are close-knit, just talking in their own personal communities. You have others that are getting involved with like the NC State uh, Farm Bureau and are trying to like take their localized issues up to higher levels. But I was like, we, we, we heard about the challenges that go there. I was like, it goes from all the way local to hopefully to state. And then maybe they get like their challenges discussed on the federal level. So I was like, these are just all these hoops and obstacles that like farmers have to jump through that make adaption and resilience difficult. <laughs> But it also, agriculture creates this opportunity and this need for interdisciplinary research. I think Greg, my colleague, had talked about it the best when he said, farmers demand and deserve concerted efforts from all areas of expertise. Agricultural, <laughs> agriculture is an opportunity for interdisciplinary success. And so inside of agriculture, I think my cohort has really come together and learned as like the rich context of these problems and issues require interdisciplinary solutions. And I was like, that's where we will continue to focus our efforts, but also uh, look into the future. <coughs> and I guess I can also do the thank you side. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and that is it. Any questions? Um, there is one online. So um, Eli, if you'd like, you can unmute yourself and ask it, or I can ask it if you um, are unable to make it and stop sharing. Yeah. So you guys want me to share that? Okay. Just hit the slideshow button. Yeah. Okay, so Eli asked, were uh, salt-resistant GE varieties being used in the field during your visit? And it would be great if y'all could get closer so the camera can get to see you for the uh, people at home. So I, I will email, or sorry, I'll answer Eli's question. <laughs> um, so the farmers were talking about with salt tolerance, they were planting more cotton because that tended to be more tolerant to the salt issues they were having. Uh, asparagus was another crop that they had considered, but it's a really high value crop. So it's a little more risky there. 
but they were looking forward to high um, salt tolerant varieties coming out in the future. So there's word of a salt tolerant soybean that might come out. Germination is a huge issue in soils with high salinity. Um, and so this is a variety of soybeans that should be able to tolerate that through the germination phase. So they're looking forward to that, but at this point they hadn't explicitly said they were using any. So good question, Eli. Are there any questions in the room? Okay. Follow up with Eli's question about salt tolerance. So with other changes such as floods, I mean, you mentioned salt tolerance as a solution to, you know, the water uh, intruding into the soils. But I mean, like in reference to floods or other areas that don't have a lot of salts that are not close to the coast, do you see that being a solution like salt tolerant herbs? Would anyone else like to take that up? Okay, um, so, so in that case, that's also where drainage really comes in to try to prevent that salt intrusion in the first place. But part of the problem is that with a lot of the water coming in, you have land loss from that erosion issue. And then you also have um, excessive salt water coming not only from the coasts and rising sea levels, but also from the groundwater coming up. So it's a, just a huge drainage issue overall. And we saw a couple different methods that farmers and the general community can incorporate to try to reduce that reduce salt water intrusion onto their farms. But I mean, it's generally like, it's gonna end up taking a much larger issue of how do we manage even water, you know, 50 miles away from where the farm is. How do you, how do you flush that water in one direction or another? Um, so it really goes to a larger scale to that. So salt water, salt tolerant crops are gonna be beneficial, but they're definitely one piece to the puzzle as far as the solution goes. I would also like to add that like if, one of the farmers we talked to and also the extension agent mentioned that even like the soybean, uh, uh, salt tolerant soybeans, like the companies aren't telling them how much salt they could actually handle. So that's also an issue where, you know, if you have certain levels in your soil, you kind of want to plant something that's going to be uh, effective there. So that's an issue that they also brought up as well. Yeah, good point. Would y'all like to manage the interim? Sure. Jason, you had a question? Yeah. Uh, so you talked about uh, different levels of trust in terms of where farmers get their information. Um, you all were identified as NC State students introduced to farmers by someone in NC State Extension. Um, and so in some ways, it's not surprising that your impression was that the most trusted kind of set of people are <laughs> NC State Extension. It could be true, Fair bias. but it might not be. Yeah. Um, so my question is, if you were to go back um, and really focus on that question of trust, what information sources do farmers trust? How could you design your research to get around that problem of a biased sample and your own identity as NC State employees? So I think there would be probably, we would have to alter our recruitment methods a little bit so we're not being introduced by an extension agent. Potentially not having an extension agent with us might change responses a little bit. I feel like people were like, you know, saying some things that were, you know, they, they were aware of the ears that were listening. So potentially those could be responses to change or to try to um, diversify what sort of responses we're getting. Um, reaching out to folks that maybe 
use exclusively an independent crop consultant, but it becomes like an issue of access as well. So this was uh, a lot of access by convenience via the extension agents. So I think like just being aware of that bias helps a little bit, but in terms of how we would uh, maybe get away from that uh, coloring effect of having the extensions as like the sphere we're looking through would be maybe a difference in approach. And also, I'm about to say also looking at like the diversity of the age range we talked to, some of the older farmers are very candid with their responses <coughs> walking in and also talking to like the different farmhands. Like Chris would always wander off and talk to the, some of the labor groups and like we got a very honest, open answer from them. So that also really helped with forming an opinion. Um, a good follow-up comes from Will Ridley in the comments and they ask, uh, very interesting, how were the farmers identified and was your sample representative? No. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this goes back to that. As we, it was a convenient sample because we have these relationships with extension. So those were the people we ended up talking to, which we're completely privileged to be able to do so, um, I think is a good starting point. Yeah. Um, yeah the... On my slide, for example, it probably should have been an asterisk and, you know, like no offense to Dominic, but we did have conversations in the van, um, maybe it's one group of us, about what would the conversations be like, like if Dominic wasn't, wasn't there. So Dominic was really the facilitator of a lot of these, uh, these connections. And yeah, I think that's an important question to, to ask, like we were maybe... You know, we, the answer is the responses might have been different if we weren't all so clearly representatives of NC State. But at the same time, there had access to farmers that I think on our own we would not necessarily have had access to. But there's a relationship of trust, as we've seen with Dominic, that enabled us to have access to more farmers. So speaking of Dominic, he has his hand raised. <laughs> he likes to uh, unmute yourself. Uh -oh. Hey, uh, totally not offended by that comment, Nolan. Um, <laughs> I, I did want to make a comment relative to what Jason said about um, how that would be different. You know, of course, we took you to folks that are supporters of extension, right? Because that's who we that's who we work with and, and, and we trust as well. And it's a, a feedback back and forth. But I did want to mention that the morning that we went to the refuge, um, before you all arrived, I was speaking with the grower who, who you didn't meet. And he had a comment about how he thought maybe university extension specialists were biased by getting funding from industry. So uh, it would have been interesting for you to hear that comment as well, but I, I did want to throw that in there. On a complex yeah, I think that above um, extension in the university that they don't consider to be a regulatory agency, which is one of the reasons they distrust EPA and other people because they regulate, we educate, that makes a difference. I think probably at the top of the list is farmers trust each other, probably the most. And, and their collaborations and their conversations and their coffee shop and breakfast conversations are probably, if you ask them, and probably you would see it probably rise to the top um, because they value each other's experience. Uh, my question is, if you look at kind of funding in general, this industry versus other industries and food and all the pieces, um, does the public have a responsibility to provide the level of funding that it does for the production of food and for 
agriculture to survive, even in places where there's high water and saltwater intrusion and all kinds of issues that might, that might come up. Uh, what is society's role in making sure that we have a strong agriculture system, that there's funding at the county, state, federal level uh, for our universities and for food production that most other industries don't get to benefit from? Should it be just a free market system and let the chips fall where they may? Or is society, should, should society step in, government step in? At least several of the farmers made it clear that they're looking to the government for help and support and solutions, um, that there's recognition that this isn't an individually solvable problem. Uh, there was a quote that you might see rotating something along the lines of America may experience starvation with a pocket full of money. And so the farmers do feel a sense of responsibility for contributing to our food system and at the same time recognize that these big issues of climate change and labor um, are not solutions that have a, necessarily a small scale solution. Um, what do you all think? I mean, I'm, I'm more curious, like you are now finding yourself in the political office in Washington, DC, and, and uh, you're an ag staffer for the House Ag Committee or something. And somebody says, you know, what are we doing here? You know, you've seen a bunch of this, you've talked to a bunch of farmers, you've been around the university. What's your answer, any one of you, in terms of society's role? Does society have a role? Part of, part of society's role is you put your money where you, I mean, physically, where you're going to put your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest. So that is a large part of society's role. Is it exclusively um, the only job of society at that point? I'm not sure. I don't have, I don't personally have a good answer to that. I'm going to mull over it. But uh, we do fund policies based on what we're eating. And that's why one of the largest challenges we were facing was, well, how does society's anti-GMO kind of view for health relate to these farmers we're talking to? And there's a serious disconnect. Um, Jean. Um, okay, I have a sort of abstract question, but to link it to the answer you just gave, um, we put our money where our food is, or maybe the food we get is where we put our money, where, right, we eat a lot of corn. Why? Because there's a lot of cheap corn. Um, so this, this actually um, points to the idea of benchmarking. Like, what do you take as stable or normal, the thing that needs to be resilient or sustained versus other stuff that you let go? Um, Two examples from your presentation, um, there was a sense that the field was needs to be resilient against saltwater intrusion. But if you look back 150 years, that was probably a salt marsh. So why are we, maybe that's the, why don't we try to be a resilient salt marsh as opposed to a field that has to resist being a salt marsh? With the community uh, point, I think the same idea came in in the intergenerational thing, so that, yeah, it's not unusual. Old people say, oh, yeah, community was, was a lot better in my day. But that day was also a time when um, disparities between Blacks and whites were written into law, right? Or there was overt Jim Crow policies. Um, so is that what we want to sustain? So how do you all decide what the benchmark is, what it is that we're trying to have these local technologies and extra knowledge and social networking to sustain. 
or to be resilient. Or to put your federal funding. I guess the real question is, what is the amicable or the amiable point of view for all parties involved, right? So if we're talking about a standard or a benchmark, we have to be able to bring everyone to the table. In this nation's history, I don't think everyone's ever brought to the table. So I think the first part of that question comes, it must be requisite by an actual standard of benchmarking that brings everyone to the table. So once we're able to do that, I think we'll find that a lot of these systems only benefit a few people. So first, I don't get to part of that question because the benchmarking has to be answered first. How do you, how do you then decide? So you say, we establish a benchmark by, a, by forming a social agreement. Who gets to sit at that table? Everyone. Pakistani people? Every, well, well, then, right? <laughs> Somebody knows about that, right? They're affected by U.S. farm policy. Exactly, right? So if we have to create the table who are actually implemented, right? Sorry. We bring with the table who are actually impacted by these policies. It might be global, right? I mean, many of the claims being made are we're freeing the world. So if that reigns true, if that's a logical syllogism, then perhaps the table is everyone. But if it's just the U.S., then everyone in the U.S. But yeah, I think it depends on what the claim is and who's actually being impacted. So if it means that Pakistanis, if it means that Europe, if it means that across the globe, perhaps that's the conversation. But I think the benchmark has to be actually um, comparable to the actual goal or the actual claim being made. So I think it has to be inclusive to the point where it actually includes the actual claim. Okay, I, I wonder how, um, I'm trying to think about all these fields that are now impacted by salt and flooding. And you said most farmers rented their, their fields. That's probably long-term contracts, but you wouldn't rent a field that's not productive. So do you expect, there are two things, two questions here. Do you expect um, more ownership of land that is high quality that they they will use themselves and farm themselves for profit, or will there just be areas that are no longer rented for farming? And who is impacted by that? The the large farms or the smaller farms? You know. So what is the kind of the social or economic um, impact of these this flooding and salt, or the the fields that are no longer farmable? Sure. So, um, so that's a good question. I think one thing that we saw is that there are sometimes fewer owners owning more smaller parcels of land. And so to your point about who is impacted, larger farmers are going to have more opportunities to diversify the plots of land they have because they either have more capital available to them or they have contacts, X, Y, Z, what have you. So that could definitely negatively affect smaller farmers in a harsher way than larger farmers. Um, and the first part of your question, can you just... Well, it was about renting and owning. Oh, renting versus so, owning. And you know, those are probably statistics that are out somewhere. I just wonder... If renting is such a large part, who wins yeah. more, the small or the large farmer? Well, both. We were actually finding that every farmer, maybe except for one, correct me if I'm wrong, I think, I think only one farmer we met owned every parcel of land that he or she um, grew cross on. Um, and so everyone was really renting at various scales. And I think that kind of, um, so I think in terms of who it affects ownership, farm ownership, I'm not really sure how that how that would go about. I think the having the access to own land is a huge issue, and that probably comes from 
other veins. And so, and also the counties that I guess these farmers are, are working in, they often would rent land that was in their immediate area. Not, um, it wouldn't be right in their own backyard necessarily, but it would be kind of generally within their county lines or not insanely far. So I think that's also a challenge too. Farmers further towards the coast, you know, are more likely to lose land to salt intrusion than ones that are a little more inland perhaps. And so, yeah, so it, in terms of ownership and who has access to that, I think that also changes by the environmental area that they're in, if that gets to your question. Well, and it's interesting that land prices are not falling and that we don't, or we didn't see evidence that large landowners are trying to sell their land in anticipation of a rising sea that might dramatically lower the prices. So when land becomes available, it's still being snatched up very quickly. Uh, and so there is a little bit of a disconnect between what farmers are seeing and this acknowledgement that salt is an issue, flooding is an issue. Uh, we believe that climate change is a thing, but we're not able to leverage our resources to plan long-term for that eventuality. And so we're still living in this world where we're doing the best we can with what we have. Can I make a comment? I'm an online participant. I'm not sure how we gate questions. Yeah, go yes, ahead. My, yes, my name is Will Ridley. I'm calling from St. Louis, Missouri. And I grew up on a farm in Tennessee. Uh, my dad had been farming a generational farm for at least three generations. Um, we raised tobacco primarily when I was a kid. Uh, but now the land is being farmed for soybeans and corn. Um, you know, I think the work you're doing is really, really important. Uh, my perspective is affected by 20 actually 32 years with Monsanto company, um, developing uh, biotech crops um, and some of the challenges and issues there. So bottom line, I think the work you're doing is extremely important. I, I couldn't be more excited about this program uh, and involving young people in trying to address, address the issues. Um, I currently rent land to a farmer in Tennessee. It's about 170 acres. Um, and he's dealing with all the challenges uh, that some of you have mentioned, although it's Tennessee, so salt is not a problem. Um, but I'm not sure what's going to happen in the future. My son is an engineer. And as he said, Dad, I can build you an airplane, but I can't plant soybeans. Um, <laughs> so um, it's, it's something will need to happen for the next generation. I'm not sure what it will be. Um, so... Uh, you know, congratulations on this program. Uh, I'm excited. I hope I can continue to participate. So, yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Dana? Yeah, um, I had a question when you talked about labor being one of the challenges that the farmers face. And you mentioned that you came across like only two farmers that did have these issues. So I was curious, um, what was the difference between their farms or their management systems from other farmers that often had papers on issue? I think in particular, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the particular farmers that didn't have labor issues had large family structures. Um, and they had employees that had been working with them for multiple years and seemed to be very happy to continue working for them. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that, that seemed to be the, the general case for the ones that didn't labor issues. Fred, and then we're going to go to Craig and Joe online. Uh, number one, I just want to say that I really love these quotes that you have coming up here and the contrast between the 
person who says it's all about love that doesn't have to make sense. And then farming is no longer farming, it's an industry, it's a business. So those contrasts are encompassed in, in what you're talking about. But I guess I was wondering about, you know, this question about should the public be helping? And the public is giving huge subsidies and other things to, to farming. But how, you know, you want to hear everybody, but how do you build a huge policy that actually helps everybody? That how, how could you possibly do that? Or what is your experience from talking to these farmers about how they would get a policy that would be more fair or, or affect everybody? My, oh, you want to go that? Okay, so I think my, again, what I deducted from talking to people was similar to what I've been researching my own accord is community. A lot of times it came down to having local structures that benefited them <clears throat> on a regional or on a community scale. So many times talking to some farmers, they would say, yeah, I would appreciate if the local government talked to me about why they're doing this. Because I think we have this big umbrella government making decisions for a wide mass of land that's not ubiquitous. I mean, our country is not ubiquitous. Thousands of soil types, millions of hectares. It's hard. It's hard for farmers to feel heard. It's hard for producers to feel listened to. So I think the first step is community-driven policies. Maybe we need a federal, I think we always need a federal government to do a strict burden test and to make sure there isn't too much burden on the state. But on the regional level, we need more talking. We need more listening. We need implementation that is farmer-based, that's individual-based, that's community-driven. Yeah, I love it. And another um, piece to go off of that is um, having more localized solutions sometimes come up. So consolidation was another conversation that we talked about a lot. And that can come into play with it, land ownership, but also in the sense of what solutions are available at the table for farmers. And often there are a lot of big companies that tend to manage everything. But then, of course, you sort of focus on the niche of farmers that provides you the most profit back. And so oftentimes farmers, such as those in North Carolina that are kind of facing these different microclimate issues, perhaps, um, kind of get left out of that decision making. And so having an environment, an economic structure that helps smaller businesses that can support the challenges of local ag um, in a smaller area, I think can also be helpful. So another point that would be helpful here in the public sphere is the need for communication, especially among the farmers and the researchers and all the people who are involved in policy making. I remember one of the farmers uh, said to us, that if you go to someone at the grocery store, if you go to a baby at the grocery store and ask him where are food made from, they'll tell you it's from the grocery store. They don't know that food comes from the farm. So for the part of public engagement, I feel that it's going to be need to do more communication and engagement for the public to be really aware of what it takes to bring about food. And since the public is involved in policies in some kind of way, that kind of information gap when it's bridged will help to implement favorable policies for farmers. And also getting more people wanting to farm. My dad did a community garden for our community to get younger people involved because it also goes back to labor issues. No one wants to be outside in the heat. They'd rather be in a mall working, making minimum wage. So farmers are a dying breed. We talked to some of the farmers. He farmed around 300 acres. He said, after I pass, I don't know what's going to happen. He's like, my operation is going to dissolve. So and two quick follow-up points to summarize what's just been said. 
Uh, one farmer recommended that a course be developed called Where Does My Food Come From? So if any faculty out there want to take that and look at it, I imagine there are some farmers that would be willing to host a field experience for your students. Uh, and then secondly, while we're talking about federal solutions, I think it's really important to mention harm. So we talked to at least one farmer uh, community member in Tillery who shared a story of significant harm and said that this wasn't done by my you know, fellow community members. This harm was done at the federal level under the you know, red, white, blue. So we just, another angle to consider with that question is what harm are some of these policies doing? At, at the same time, I can just add one thing like, um, and this goes back to an earlier question, like, I don't know all the answers, but I, one thing I find like potentially deeply problematic, problematic is like kind of the bailout system. So if it like insurance programs and the fact that we like are kind of allowing, <laughs> there's a bubble around farming this area, even though it's not that great to farm and there's problems with that. So I think, you know, a policy question is, do we keep bailing out farming on land that cannot and should not be farmed? That's, I think that's a big question. So I'll go out on a limb <laughs> and say I feel a little differently. But, but obviously, we have to talk about this with, within our own group. And we all come from a variety of sort of disciplines and backgrounds and experiences. So, Okay, um, Craig, did you want to uh, chime in here? Okay. Um, Zach, I think you also had your hand raised. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. And actually, um, that last couple of comments really, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this last couple of comments really got to what I was going to ask about. So you can kind of just, I think this is a very simple question to, uh, to address, which is where the farmers, when you talk to them about like subsidies or crop insurance uh, supports and all the different federal supports for farming, you know, getting at these early comment, comments about uh, the public's role in supporting agriculture. Were the farmers that you spoke with, were they like uniformly supportive of all of those subsidies and various supports like for crop insurance? Or was there some, was there some variation in terms of their, um, their views on that? I think there was variation on people's views about everything. Um, <laughs> so I don't think we got two identical perspectives whatsoever. Um, so absolutely there were differences and, um, very strong opinions in both directions. Yeah, we talked to that farmer who told a story about telling one story to the bank and another story to, uh, the crop insurance representative, uh, in order to, you know, get the most from both sides. And then the next farmer, very next farmer we spoke to said how he felt crop insurance was just kind of an immoral thing and that it often put farmers in the position of having to tell things that were not entirely true. Um, so there was a lot of contrast uh, with, with every issue that we explored. Okay, I need to hop in because we're out of time and I wanna thank our speakers. This is a very good uh, presentation.